James, James is the one who left, uh, he's got his hand over his eyes. It looks like he's kind of curled up to protect himself from this dazzling light that is coming from Jesus and uh, Peter there on the left. It's a little hard to tell. He may have fallen down or he may have simply dropped to his knees. Um, he's still focused on Jesus and his hand is gesturing, right? And he may still be thinking about those three dwellings that uh, he had offered to build. And now, on the, uh, on the two sides, in the middle, again, there are two insets. And again, this is like, this is the storytelling through the icon, right? So the one on the left is Jesus leading the three disciples up the mountain. And the one on the right is Jesus leading them back down. Makes sense? Now, in both cases, right, on each side, Jesus is looking back at the disciples as they are following, and he's pointing his hand toward the direction they're going. The disciples on the left are gesturing back down the mountain as though they're not really sure that they actually want to be following him up the mountain. And then on the right, John's hand, he's the, uh, the one on the left of the group, it's really hard to see here, but John's hand there is gesturing, um, in the, he's extended in the direction that they're going, that Jesus is leading them. But the three disciples, if you look at, um, at that, you can kind of see just the shapes, right? The three disciples on the right are all clumped together. It doesn't give the impression of movement in the way that the grouping on the left side does. From the left side, they're kind of arranged in order of height, heading up the mountain. And on the right-hand side, they're just kind of clumped. Um, and the impression I have is that the disciples are actually reluctant to follow both ways. They're reluctant to go up, and they're reluctant to go back down. And Jesus, in both directions, is, is leading them along and looking back as he's guiding them. And then, there's those two weird sort of black holes right in the middle. Um, there's these, these kind of dark, jagged openings. They have some kind of scrubby-looking tree or plant or whatever growing on top of them. Those holes look dangerous. Um, and those holes are between the disciples, where they've fallen on the mountain, they've fallen on the ground, and Jesus. Right there in between. And I don't know, are they there to prevent the disciples from trying to climb up to where Jesus is in his glory, which of course would be impossible? Are they showing us a glimpse into another part of reality, like the part of reality that isn't up on this mountaintop being bathed in the golden glow that we really sort of see throughout this icon? And then, finally, just kind of Hold it a little further away. You can just get the icon all together. Jesus is obviously the focus of the whole composition. Your eye is drawn straight to Jesus as you look. And those disciples on the bottom are all kind of fallen and chaotic looking. And from, from further back and from this small, you, you actually have 
pretty hard to even see John's face and, and James's face. It's obvious their faces would be on those figures. If you're just looking from further back. Peter at least is facing toward Jesus. And I wonder if Theophanes meant for Peter to be in some ways the stand-in for, for us, for you and for me, as he often is in the gospel narratives. Um, but whether or not he is meant, Peter is meant to stand in for us. Jesus floats above and gazes out at us, right? And through his gaze, we are invited in to the story that is being told by this icon. You may, at some point, have had a, a mountaintop kind of experience, you know, along these lines, or something that you identify as a mountaintop experience. In Exodus, we hear that the glory of the Lord on the mountaintop when Moses went up was like a devourer of fire. Jesus on the mountaintop is transfigured so that his face shines like the sun. His clothes become dazzling white. Moses and Elijah there joining him, the three of them talking together. Being on the mountaintop like this, whether it's a literal mountaintop where you have that kind of experience, which happens sometimes, or figurative mountaintop experience that can happen anywhere. Being on a mountaintop is intense, and it's exhilarating, and it's amazing, and overwhelming, and it may be, when we're on the mountaintop, that we want to stay, right, and keep experiencing it, and that's what Peter was doing in offering to build those three dwellings. And it may be traumatic, like it looks like it was for John and James in this icon, right? Falling back, falling down, James hiding his face. No matter what, no matter what, the mountaintop changes us. And no matter what, the mountaintop experience comes to an end. And we have to go back down the mountain. Even if we're reluctant, like those disciples on the inset of the right hand side, we really have to be led carefully by Jesus. But what this icon does not show us is that when the disciples get back down, when they're down in the valley, they've been changed and they have been strengthened. Matthew's Gospel that we just heard just now says that on the way back down, Jesus told them not to tell anyone about, this, about what they had seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So this mountaintop experience, this transfiguration moment, is set firmly in the midst of the way of the cross. The mountaintop is not the goal. The mountaintop is not the beginning. And it's not the end. The mountaintop is part of the experience in the middle of the way of the cross. So after the experience of Jesus' transfiguration, Peter and John and James are there, living in the valley, 
maybe in that symbolic darkness that we see kind of peeking through that mountain in those holes. They're taking up the cross, they're following Jesus as he walks toward death and resurrection. And he had just described that to them as the gospel narrative puts it. So you didn't hear this this morning, but if we were to go back a chapter from this morning's reading, Jesus had just explained to the disciples about his death and resurrection. So the narrative structure of the gospel itself puts this moment immediately after the news of Christ's death and resurrection. So think about what it's like for them living in the valley. And you can look at um, the excerpt that we have from the letter from Peter today, right? That's part of his life in the valley. He's living his life changed as a result of his experience on the mountain, changed after he comes back down the mountain. He describes in his letter what that experience meant to him. Hearing God's voice proclaiming Jesus as God's son. And of course, you remember that our tradition tells us that Peter ended his life as a martyr in Rome because of following Jesus. That's life in the battle. That's where we are. And we may have experienced the glory at the top of the mountain, some overwhelming encounter with Jesus at moment when we knew, when we knew we were in the presence of the divine and we wanted to stay there just like Peter. And it turns out that we can't stay in that moment. We are always in the presence of the divine. But we can't stay in that moment. And if we try to stay and just bask in all that glory, it would disappear, just as it did on that mountain. And if we're lucky, then it leaves us with the understanding that that voice from the cloud gave to those disciples. That the glory of the transfiguration is wrapped up in the reality of Jesus as God's Son, which includes arrest, the cross, and death. We return to the valley to walk away from the cross following our Savior. When God calls Moses into the cloud, and Moses comes back down, he brings the law, which informs the way the people of Israel order their common life. And so we here, this morning, we may be up on a mountain, maybe briefly for this time of worship together. We may see the transfigured face of Christ in one another, here and now, as we gather for worship, as we are about to go back down the mountain, walk the way of Lent in the world. And this is the real world. This is the real world. The world where an earthquake in Turkey and Syria killed a 
an ever-escalating number of people. If you notice every time you hear the news, the number gets higher. The one I heard this morning was 46,000. Unbelievable. Unimaginable destruction and made homeless and injured just countless people. It's the real world where our own state government holds as an open question for debate whether or not each and every one of God's children is equally worthy of love and safety in our public life. It's a world where in this agricultural state of Iowa, one in every 13 Iowans struggles with hunger and food insecurity. And of those 8,000 are children. It's the real world. We are walking in the battle. And, and, despite the difficulty and the hardships of this world, and there are many, and despite the promise that we take up, as we follow Jesus, despite all of that, we are grounded in hope. We know that after the cross comes the empty We remember that hope when we remember our time on the mountain top, wherever it was, that we saw the glory of God. We remember that hope when we come together week by week to worship, to celebrate the resurrection. It's what we do every single Sunday, even the Sundays in Lent. And remember that hope, especially today, as we gather to formally receive Brooklyn into the Episcopal Church and into the Anglican Communion. As Brooklyn takes this step into this particular room in God's beautiful house, each one of us is invited to take this opportunity to recommit our own selves to our own baptismal promises. Each of us can experience this moment on the mountaintop and then go back down to the valley renewed and changed and strengthened to be God's people in God's world. Are you ready? Let's do it.